The title of her talk again tonight is In the Margins of Their Modernism, M.A. and Cezanne. Please welcome Carol Armstrong. Uh, now I'm really, really embarrassed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hal. Um, um, I'm speechless. And Armstrongian. I don't know what to make of that. It doesn't come trippingly off the tongue. But. And thank you so much, um, President Tillman, for doing me the honor of inviting me to, to give this, uh, this lecture. And also thank you to all of you for coming out in this truly um, awful weather um, to listen to me. Thankfully, it's dry and warm uh, in here. And we'll have the illusion of Provence uh, for, uh, for a while. Um, could I? Get the first two slides, please. Uh, and my little screen that I'm supposed to push is not on. Oops, up here. Um, I may just call for left and right in that case. Um, I guess I should start with a um, confession. Um, this lecture began, uh, or at least the topic of this lecture, uh, began at least in part out of indecision and a kind of gluttony. I couldn't make up my mind as to whether I wanted to talk about Manet or Cezanne. I've been working on Manet for some 10 years now, but I can't seem to give up um, thinking or talking about him yet, and probably won't for some time. I've just begun uh, working on Cezanne, though he's long uh, intrigued me and baffled me. Uh, and it happens, uh, of course, that some of his uh, beautiful watercolors are up in the art museum right now, giving, uh, presenting a wonderful opportunity. So effectively, I decided that instead of making up my mind, um, I would simply talk about them both. That has a couple of drawbacks, uh, namely that I won't be able to dig deeply into the work of either one as I would like to do. Um, instead, we will look relatively lightly, uh, for the most part, at several chains of images and the relationships among them. Um, it also means, I suppose, that this is sort of two or three little mini lectures and, in one, and um, I've timed it, and I think it goes for a sort of full uh, hour, so I hope you will bear, uh, bear with me. There is established uh, precedent, so there's also good reason uh, for looking at Ma uh, Manet and Cezanne together. Ever since Cezanne's boyhood friend, Emile Zola, conflated the two very different figures in the tragic modernist character of the artist Claude Lantier in his 1886 novel, The Masterpiece. And at least since then, there have been two 19th century uh, French paint, they have been the two 19th century French painters held responsible for the advent of what's still called modernism, namely a radical art for the modern age that embraced and yet was alienated from the conditions of modernity, that distinguished itself from all that was commercial and kitsch, that challenged bourgeois norms and tastes in art, whose avant-garde destiny was to turn in on itself isolate its own material foundation, and define its own essence. Together, Manet and Cezanne are the heroic fathers of that modernism, the origin of that teleology. 
As Clement Greenberg put it in a 1951 essay ostensibly about Cezanne, called Cezanne and the Unity of Modern Art, painters from Manet on were the apostles of the modern movement. These are his words. Their work was marked by both originality and mastery. They were not only heroic, again his words, but enormous. Another essay on Cezanne of the next year by Greenberg, called Cezanne, Gateway to Contemporary Painting, also began with Manet, who Greenberg said was the first painter in our tradition, proceeding to state that the Cubists took their point of departure from Cezanne and went on to produce what is still the greatest painting of the two or three generations since, again, his words. Scattered throughout Greenberg's essay is the phrase, from Manet on. In these two essays by Greenberg, he makes it clear that it was Cezanne who converted the 19th century inheritance of Manet into the 20th century future of abstract art. As Roger Fry put it earlier with regard to Cezanne, in his 1927 monograph on the artist, quote, those artists among us whose formation took place before the war recognize Cezanne as their tribal deity and their totem, unquote. The same could have been said for Manet back in the 1860s and 70s and beyond. Such views of modernist art and its totems have come under much fire in the decades since Greenberg was active. At the same time, those views have not gone away, even when most criticized. For good or for ill, Manet and Cezanne remain the great challenging inaugurators of modernism in the critical, the academic, and I think even the popular uh, imagination. In my own thinking on these two artists, I've had various inclinations with regard to their status as titanic figureheads of a heroic modernism. To see them, rather, as late-coming romantics rather than forerunning modernists, for the former view seems to account better for their lack of fit with their respective generations. Then at one point I thought to reconfigure the modernist lineage that they began along feminist lines. Many, however, would find that an oxymoronic project given modernism's uh, reputed machismo and its famed reliance on the female body as the sexualized object of its gaze. Another thought along the way was simply to at least try to disregard the modernist lineage and concentrate on the work itself, as well as its difference from what has passed for modernist. Manet's and Cezanne's oeuvre are both much stranger, much more fragile and human than the modernist view from above allows. Another final thought was to accept their status as seminal for the modernist line even accept that line as a historical and discursive given, a key feature of critical discourse on modern art that won't go away, and to look in the interstices and at the edges and margins of that modernism. For a different view, informed by a brand, my brand, of feminist looking, of what is compelling about these two very different artists. That last option is the way I've settled on for this evening's lecture to which there are three parts. A first on the two artists' presentations of themselves in paint. A second part on the intertwining of their two notorieties around the painting of the female body. And a third on the lowest of the low, some would say, the most trivially decorative, the most feminine, again in quotes, part of their work, 
namely their work in still life and floral painting. And by the way, what I mean by a brand of feminist looking, um, I hope will become evident as I go along. I was tempted to define it, but I think I won't. Mano rarely paused in his painting of others, particularly women, to paint himself. The self-portrait on the left is one of the very rare exceptions. There are two possible readings of this self-portrait. One a modernist one, and the other not exactly. And that's where I want to begin. Before I proceed, however, let me just mark the fact that Cezanne, the rough, austere hermit from the provinces, who is known, it's actually a much rehearsed anecdote, to have emphasized his difference from Manet but one evening by hitching up his pants like a zinc worker and claiming in a thick Provençal uh, drawl, which he exaggerated, to be too dirty to shake his gentlemanly precursor's hand. Nevertheless, he looked to Manet's example when painting one of his own many self-portraits. And this one on the right uh, from the mid-1880s uh, uh, was uh, painted a few years, just a few years after Manet had died. He did so, as you might see already, partly to distinguish himself from Manet, but I'll return to that in a moment. And could I have the next slide on the right, please? Manet likely had Velazquez's crowded Las Meninas on the right in mind when he painted his self-portrait. He revered Velazquez and is said to have thought of himself and actually to have been thought of by others and written about by others as a Velazquez without a court, as well as a courtier come too late to be painted by Velazquez. I um, would have you look at the gesture um, in uh, Las Meninas uh, of the painter uh, painting and of the um, uh, palette. If you look at that, you look at that pause in the act of painting with the one hand poised midair, the other gripping the palette. It has been simply flipped and enlarged by Manet and removed from his courtly context. Even the back of the canvas uh, present in Las Meninas is missing. The question is, how should we think of that omission of the painter's court, that paring down to just the painter and his painting gesture? And could I have the next on the right, please? Well, one way would be this way. Looking forward to what would come, Picasso's self-portrait of 1906, for instance, on the right, which also looks back through Cezanne's to Manet's self-portrait, flipping the orientation of the body again to return it to its original orientation, but continuing to do without the back of the canvas on which he's working, let alone any sort of retinue. And Picasso even does away with the paintbrush in the one hand, as if the painting issued directly from his body, the way his little, and I can't help saying, phallic thumb issues from the palette, making any tool superfluous. Reading back to the source then, to Manet's um, uh, painting, one of the sources, we might say that what Manet already had given Picasso was the modernist definition of painting par excellence and of the painting self. Alone and autonomous, his canvas conflates in one figure and one surface, the painter painting and the painter painted, the act of painting and the result of that act. It is simultaneously a representation of the painter at work on a canvas and quite literally the canvas upon which he works and upon which his self-representation is being produced. 
Hence, the omission of Velazquez's canvas back. This is, both canvas, this is both canvases in one, suggesting that the subject and object of Manet's brush are one and the same, and that no other intrudes, no outside spectator or any differentiation between himself as painter, himself as viewer, and himself as painted and viewed object. In short, he conjoins the circular, self-enclosed oneness of the modern identity to the self-reflexive unity and autonomy of the modernist painter. I am what I am, as man and medium. I am nothing other than myself, he seems to say. And then came Picasso, improving on the model, as it was his destiny to do, presenting himself as youthful and forward-looking, not middle-aged and retrospectively inclined. Could I have the next on the right, please? But another way of looking at Manet's self-portrait suggests itself. Namely, that his decision to paint himself when past his prime and not particularly well, and likewise his decision to excise Velazquez's court, are poignant choices full of hesitation and loss. Look at him when he was younger, painted by his friend Fontaine Latour on the right. Back in 1867, when Manet, a handsome, charming, courtly man, much admired for his wit, his haberdashery, and his personal grace, was full of ambition. Looking forward to his one-man show outside the walls of the Universal Exposition, or World's Fair of that year, celebrated for his new manner in painting by Zola and others. Look at him now on the left, his face a bit gaunt, his beard a bit scraggly, his body indeterminately bloated, whether by middle-aged girth, loose painter's jacket, or simply by an excess of painted um, expanse. It's really hard to tell. Painted in his own variation of impressionist facture, the painting is marked through and through in this reading by a kind of uncertainty. Here, I would propose, impressionist paint handling reads as lack of focus rather than optical shorthand. Look at the smudge uh, of a painting hand, uh, for instance, with the dash of white for the end of the, of the, of the brush uh, and um, the little tip of, uh, of russet. The smudge of the painting hand coalesces briefly with the help of a bit of red that the slide doesn't quite capture into a thumb, and then a streak of white for brush handle above and a dab of russet for the brush tip below. It's as if Manet couldn't quite bring himself into focus, and as if he were caught not at all in a state of self-sufficiency, but in a moment of indecision, unable even to quite bring himself to begin painting yet. And then there's the dab of white in his cravat, at odds with the raffish coat he wears, a mark signifying the sparkle of a cravat pin, it is a poignant index of his renowned elegance, his care for his appearance, his presentation of his person to the gaze of others, not just to himself, the last little vestige of Fontaine Latour's man of the world, and the barest of hints of his courtliness without a court. Looked at in that light, then, his decision to excise the peopled world of Velazquez's court of old looks like a stranding and even something of a bereavement as much as a modernist achievement. Could I have the next two, please? 
Well, the first of the two readings I just gave of Manet's self-portrait must prevail in Cezanne's case, I think. No matter how much I may want to, I can't produce anything like the second reading in the face of this monkish, somewhat forbidding self-image of the hermit painter of Aix-en-Provence on the left, which not surprisingly was copied almost word for word a year or two later by his Dutch Provencal compatriot, Vincent van Gogh, on the right who merely substituted his features and signature factor for Cezanne's. Velazquez's canvas back is added back in, but it signals, I think, no internal division within the act of painting, the self of the painter, or the definition of the medium itself, nor any hesitation or looking outward to a world beyond. The painted back of the canvas lined up with the right edge of the real canvas, while the palette parallels the bottom edge simply serves to seal the unified, self-enclosed world of the painter, fiercely given over to his painting. Severe in its restriction to itself, both framing and rhyming the bulk of the painter's body with the back of the canvas and the horizontal rectangle of the palette, so that all three together agree to picture the canvas at large, the canvas that they're part of in microcosm, while showing what painting is made of, Pache Greenberg, paint and palette, the canvas and its support, the body and soul of the painter. Could I have the next on the right, please? Well, I'll rest with that conclusion about Cezanne for the moment. He is the harder case uh, for me, I'll admit. It's enough at this juncture to indicate the fact that unlike Manet, Cezanne was an inveterate self-portrayer, and he didn't always portray himself in the same way with the same apparently stringent uh, confidence. Sometimes, as in this little watercolor self-portrait uh, from about a decade later, the mid-90s on the right, he appears shrunken and squashed, squashed into the square of white paper, less secure and dominant, looking out and askance with a hint of surprise, look at that eye, as if a little taken aback by the way his glance at himself turns into our glance at him an outside gaze that pins him there and is not entirely under his control. Could I have the next two, please? Well, as most of us know, Manet's position as the first father of modernism was secured by the infamy of his Olympia, which, of course, you see on the right, when it was shown in the Salon of 1865, and when it met with the sort of reception in print that you see visually exemplified on the right, in a cartoon uh, from 1865 by Bertal. And you might just note um, the changes uh, that the cartoonist has made. Uh, most notably, I suppose, is the blowing up of the, um, of the bouquet and the moving it over to the center of um, Olympia's body, um, the bringing out of the black cat with its um, arched back so that you can actually see it, um, the exaggeration of what was felt to be the ugliness and awkwardness of um, uh, the body uh, and face of Olympia, and then, of course, um, the caption, which, among other things, dubs her Manette. Well, from that moment forward, Manet's name became indissociable from the painted body of the little courtesan and everything that it represented. Not only a new manner of painting, but an insolent challenge, as many felt, flung in the face of the salon viewer, informing him directly that his act of disinterested aesthetic con contemplation in front of the legion of nudes 
nymphs and venuses that decorated the salon walls in those days was nothing but a lewd bit of sexual exchange between a commodity and a consumer. Proto-feminist deconstruction or unflinching acknowledgement of and collusion in the patriarchal slash capitalist system of desire. See it how you will. Either way, the body of this painted woman immediately became a token of Manet's shock the bourgeois stance, and therefore of his status as an avant-garde avatar. Or for the champions of modernism at that moment, like Zola, she was an index of the artist himself. And a perfect example uh, of modernist positivism. She was nothing but a set of colored patches corresponding to Manet's particular physiologically based way of seeing. Either way, once again, she was the currency of the artist. That's why, I think, the cartoonist dubbed her Manette. Can I have the next on the right, please? And that's why Cezanne, who came to Paris in the early 60s in time to encounter Manet's scandalous painting, decided to do his own Olympia. He cartoonized her, dubbed her a modern Olympia, as you, and you see that on the right, one-upping Manet and showing this version of her, uh, there were many, in the first Impressionist exhibition in 1874. Like the caricatures of her that abounded in the press, which, Manet, which Cezanne deliberately mimics, he shoves the pieces of Olympia's composition around to make it his own. The bouquet blossoms into a huge Baroque uh, vase. The black servant whips the sheet off a now cowering nude white blonde animal whose amorphous lump of a body has none of the dubious appeal of the original Olympias. Then a hissing black, back-arched black cat that you can hardly see once again becomes an absurd little dog. And finally, he inserts the male client come viewer with his back turned to us uh, that was implied in Manet's painting into the foreground, clearly marking him as a surrogate for Cezanne himself as well as for Manet. Thus, Cezanne accomplished several things at once. He secured a place for himself in the modernist lineage that began with Manet and gave himself a modernist pedigree. He rivaled, mocked, parodied, and trumped his avant-garde elder, uh, his elder by only a few years, by reading him through his most scathing cartoonists. He substituted a caricatural signature for Manet's famous playing card flatness and finally, he asserted his difference from Manet. What he called his cuillard, which is roughly translated into ballsy, brand of brash, thumb-your-nose painting for what now, in contrast, look like, looks like Manet's reserved, gentlemanly style. This is the painterly sign, this painting, of the contrary country bumpkin identity that Cezanne theatricalized on the model of Courbet before him when he acted like a zinc worker in Manet's elegant, urbane company. And all this was done using Olympia as the coin of exchange between two men. Could I have the next two, please? Cezanne had already rehearsed the strategy and rehearsed it again with regard to Manet's other most scandalous painting of the 1860s, uh, the so-called, the now so-called Luncheon on the Grass, then it was called uh, Bathing which when shown in the Salon des Refusés of 1863 generated some of the same reaction as Olympia did two years later. Around the updated and hence absurdist uh, 
pastoral subject of clothed modern men consorting outdoors with naked women. In the late 60s, Cezanne began caricaturing the luncheon, exaggerating its, absurd, its absurdism and remaking it in his own wild, blatantly untutored, post-romantic Cuillard image, uh, as, for example, in the pastoral on the right. Cuillard, by the way, a piece of sexual slang that manages to combine a crude allusion to virility with a deliberate outsider's position and bull-in-a-china-shop attitude to the Parisian art world, was Cezanne's own post-adolescent adjective. He used it proudly as a mark of distinction, the sign of his outdoing of all other boldnesses that came before him or that were still then around him. Can I have the next on the right, please? Well, Cezanne went on at it through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, so that in the end, Manet's luncheon became a kind of palimpsest for a whole line of scramblings and variations, as well as some sex changes along the way, which didn't stop until Cezanne died. The trio of great bathers on the right, of course, is the latest and most famous of them, the one in Philadelphia, still retains traces of the luncheon and all the variations, male and female, that had issued from it in the interim the pastoral setting, the combination of sitting, crouching, and reclining, the little figures in the distance, uh, and the narrative and mythological ambiguity. Something mysterious always seems to be going on um, between the figures in these paintings, but what exactly is never clear. All of that, I think, ultimately goes back to the luncheon uh, on the grass, among many other um, um, prototypes that Cezanne was looking at. And in a modernist reading of Manet and Cezanne, it is fitting that it should, that the challenge of the great paintings of Manet's early career should be met and answered by the great paintings of Cezanne's late career, huge, ambitious paintings which were clearly meant as a kind of summa, modern-slash-classic history pictures in front of which the older Cezanne was photographed by his young admirer, Emile Bernard. Paintings that would stand at the end of a career and guarantee his greatness for posterity. And that they did. For these are the paintings that one thinks of first when one thinks of what came after. For one thing, just a year hence, really, Picasso's great slap in the face of 1907, the Demoiselle d'Avignon, that is the centerpiece of MoMA's uh, early 20th century collection. When one thinks of paving the golden road to cubism and beyond, one thinks of these first, I think, and only then does one move on down the old genre ladder and think of the genre pictures, the portraits, certainly the landscapes, especially the landscapes, the other modernist genre associated with Cezanne and the only, um, or the, the one genre that I will not be talking about today, and then the still lifes, not to mention the watercolors, drawings, and other small etudes. Could I have the next two, please? Well, let us take another look now, beginning with Manet and then proceeding to Cezanne, moving on down the genre ladder to its lowest rung, still life. And let us move aside from Olympia's prostitute body and insolent face. As Tim Clark has remarked, it's not nearly as insolent close up, and it's also close up that you notice that her hair is loose on her shoulder. Let us move aside to where the most painterly pleasures of the painting have been displaced, to the bloom of vaginal pink in her loosened hair, and the great flash of brightness and color 
that is the bouquet brought to her. And that, and that the caricaturists, as you might remember from the Bertal cartoon, will want to move over and map directly onto the hidden genital center of her body. May I have the next on the left, please? Well, Olympia's bouquet was not the only painted bouquet that Manet ever sent to a woman. He sent one to his female friend and rival painter, Bert Morisot, in 1872, and you see that on the left. Towards the end of what had been a sort of romance between them, before she married his one of his brothers in 1874, perhaps only because Manet himself was already married to his family's piano teacher, Suzanne Lehnhoff. It was a flirtatious gesture, but it was also a little joke between painters, in which painted fan, painted violets, and painted letter addressed to Morisot and signed uh, by Manet. You can see just barely, uh, and that's all you can read of the sort of faux writing, um, the address to Morisot and the signature um, by uh, Manet. These were all given to Mor the, uh, combined in a painting, these were given to Morisot as a gift in lieu of a real fan, a real posy, and a real letter. This gesture is related, uh, perhaps inversely, to the modernist project of self-reflexively defining the medium of painting and refuting its illusionism. But its difference lies in its lightness, its wit and play and perversity, and its insistence on painting as a form of exchange, gift-giving, and dialogue, involving not self-sufficiency, but a relationship between two people, and related to, rather than clearly distinguishable from writing. Look at the way writing blends imperceptibly into painting, the way the signature becomes part of the painting as much as a framing element, and this happens frequently in Manet's art. This is not the exchange between men of the currency of a painted woman, however, but the exchange between a man and a woman in which the woman receiving the bouquet is as much a human subject as the man sending it. And it wasn't the last such bouquet, as we shall see. Could I have the next two, please? The bouquet of violets belongs to the genre of still life. So let us look quickly at the beginning of Manet's still life practice, which started in the early 60s at the time of Olympia and the luncheon and continued steadily throughout his career. Not much exhibited during his lifetime, these paintings acquired no notoriety at the time. Why should they? They are mere still lives. Yet they were important to his practice, and they begin by charting the gustatory chain of buying, as you see on the left, cooking, as you see on the right, and can I have the next on the left, and eating food, as well as the feminine spaces and activities of the haute bourgeois house, unwrapping a purchase in the pantry, cooking a pot au feu of fish in the kitchen, and setting the table in the dining room. Could I have the next two, please? That chain of buying, cooking, and eating in Manet's still lives also includes the dessert course and the afternoon tea with brioche, the least visceral and most aesthetic moment of the civilization of the meal, not accidentally marked in each case by a nonchalant or apparently nonchalant uh, blossom here and here, signifying the decorative, if not the feminine, status of the dessert. And could I have the next two, please? And then, of course, there is the most feminine brand of still life, which has nothing at all to do with bodily forms of consumption and all to do with the aesthetics of the house. 
and that is the flower piece, which Manet also painted from the beginning of his career, as in these vases of peonies of 1864. Linking the aesthetic act of painting to the aesthetics of flower arranging, uh, these are signed in each case by the flourish of a loose blossom at the base of the vase, here and here. Similar to that in the dessert with melon and liqueur that we just saw. And can I have the next two, please? As if to drive home the point about decor and optical pleasure replacing hunting, killing, and eating, Manet rounded out his series of peony arrangements with a hanging stem and shears, which you see on the left, that mimic and replace the huntsman's hanging rabbit, beloved of Chardin, the 19th century's favorite 18th century still life painter, and taken up by Manet himself a couple of years later, a couple of years after the peony series. Uh, in this uh, painting on the right, which is Manet's sort of revised copy after Chardin. And can I have the next on the right, please? And of course, these peony stems also tie the parlor to the garden, the feminine aesthetics of floral and household arrangement to those of pruning and gardening. And painting is linked to both through the shears and the ubiquitous strewn blossom which stand in for the implement of the paintbrush and double the framing gesture of the painter's signature very often. Could I have the next on the left? It is fitting, then, that that same flourish of a blossom here uh, should lie at the skirt together with a rolled-up um, canvas um, which bears Manet's signature, though you probably can't see that, of his 1870 portrait of a female painter painting flowers one of the oldest provinces of the female painter. This on the left was Eva Gonzalez, Bert Morisot's rival at that time, and his attentions, painterly and otherwise, and the only painter he could really claim as a student. The stray blossom at her, at her hem stands again as a kind of signature, at once connecting Manet's art to that of the female floral painter, claiming it as his own, and distinguishing his brand from her brand of it. Could I have the next on the right, please? No stray blossoms lie at the base of the rival painting Manet did of Bert Morisot that same year, shown not painting, but reposing decoratively and with supreme elegance in her mother's parlor on the right. Nevertheless, Manet managed oh so subtly to sew the floral motif right into the fabric of the flounce. And I really don't know if you can see that, but you'll have to trust me that it's, uh, that it's there. To sew the floral motif right into the fabric of the flounce at the bottom of her fashionable white dress, intricately imbricating and identifying the art and materiality of his painting with the art and materials of the dressmaker and dress wearer. Can I have the next two, please? One might be inclined to think that the last paintings of a great modernist painter should be great paintings, either great successes or great failures, but great nevertheless, like the late great bathers of Cezanne. Instead, confined during the last years of life to various country houses and country cures, bedridden, reduced to receiving visitors and sending and receiving letters, Manet painted a series of florals among the lightest and loveliest, the most overtly decorative, and in the context most poignant of all of his work heretofore. 
This series went on until he died in 1883 after an amputation of syphilis and gangrene. The series included a delicate arrangement of violets and clematis in a tall rectangular vase set against a light gray ground, as you see on the left, a bunch of moss roses in a wide-bottomed vase set against a dark ground on the right. Could I have the next two? Two roses of different colors in a tall, thin champagne glass on the left, and two sprays of lilacs in a short, squat, everyday drinking glass, each casting a minimal shadow to distinguish it from its gray ground, fading imperceptibly from horizontal to vertical surface. Could I have the next two, please? A bouquet of Manet's beloved peonies in a wide-bellied vase with an ornately orientalist gilt pattern etched upon its surface on the left, and an arrangement of roses and tulips in a tall octagonal vase, likewise etched with an orientalist gilt dragon, each set on a marble surface against a dark ground, each nevertheless opening its bright splash of colored petals to the, to the light. Across the series, Manet played with all the self-reflexivity that we associate with modernist painting's drive to define its essence, with the effects of transparency, the glass containers, and opacity, the floral contents, with faux gilt and faux marble surfaces, with horizontal and vertical dark and light grounds and the way the flowers detach themselves from them, with the equivalence between petal and pigment, the identification of painting with color and light-receiving surfaces, which is what the petals of flowers are. But he played this self-reflexive game lightly and lovingly in the decorative register and in a feminine genre with a long tradition that Manet did not so much challenge as embrace. It was, I think, a way of clinging to life, not a shaking of the fist at the bourgeoisie. Could I have the next two, please? Of course, at the same time, Manet was at work on his last great painting, The Bar at the Folie Bergère, on the left, which he finished and exhibited in the Salon of 1882. It is a complex painting that contains many of the thematics with which he had begun in the early days. Among them, a woman as an object of the gaze, with a male customer implied before her and mirrored behind her uh, in the mirror reflection. I always think of this painting as bigger than it actually uh, actually is. It's actually three by about three by four and a half feet, which is a medium-sized painting, nothing like the size of Olympia and the luncheon, and certainly nothing like what Manet had imagined himself doing for the last several years of his life, but never did do. A grand mural series for the new Hotel de Ville, celebrating the important public scenes and settings of modern life. But I think of it in the still life register that it puts in the foreground, a new kind of still life for Manet, a spectacular commercial one explicitly on display for the purposes of exchange. And I don't know if you can see it, but Manet signs his name um, on the bottle of liqueur uh, over here on the left. I think of it, too, in relation to the series of florals that Manet was doing at the same time using the same marble top counter that he set up in his studio to paint the bar at the Folie Bergère. The barmaid with her reflection is an uncanny figure, but at the same time, one has only to look at the two blossoms 
uh, in the stemmed glass in front of her, defining it all as spectacular decor, and the two-color spray in her bodice, associating paint with blossom with decor once more, to see that she can be read not through the contemporary discourse on clandestine prostitution, but as having something to do with Manet's last flowers, as they've been called, such as these light-responding roses and lilacs on the right. Can I have the next two? And these lilacs with the detail on the right. In their transparent, light-gathering glass vases, on their marble surfaces, against their opaque black backgrounds, displaying with exquisite finesse the way petal, leaf, and glass are put together out of the differential deployment of paint, oil pigment, color. Could I have the next two, please? And this series includes as well a set of watercolor florals from around 1880, just prior to the commencement of the bar at the Folie Bergère. Some simple, such as the briar rose on the left, some more complex, such as the multi-flower spray, which you see on the right. And can I have the next two? And some decorating the margins and the surfaces of letters written to female friends, such as these to his friend Isabel Lemonnier. Both of these are, are written to Isabel, who was the sister of Madame Charpentier, the influential salon hostess and the wife of Zola's publisher, Georges Charpentier, the owner of the illustrated magazine La Vie Moderne and the gallery that went with it, in which Manet exhibited in 1880. Along with Marie Laurent, the famous model for Marcel Proust's Odette Swan, Isabelle Lemonnier was also Manet's favorite model during these years and the woman to whom he wrote most letters. And I'll show you a portrait of her in just a moment. These letters pursue the game begun with the bouquet and letter sent to Bert Morisot in 1872, but inversely, for they are real letters, real communications, decorated with false flowers, whose watercolor petals are woven next to and under and over the ink scrawl of Manet's handwriting, definitively associating painting with script, the visual with the linguistic, the decorative with the communicative, while also, of course, subtly distinguishing the one from the other. And of course, these are exchanges, not the autonomous, self-sufficient works of modernism, literally parts of a dialogue between two people, though, of course, we don't have the other half of the dialogue. Could I have the next two, please? And there's Isabelle Lemonnier on the right. Now, these watercolors weren't always flowers, but they almost always associated the simplest of still-life items, a plum or mirabelle, for instance, and the simplest of painterly means needed to raise them off the page with language, with plays on words, with a kind of rhyming and punning between the names of things and the names of women, not to mention a game of gallantry. A Isabelle, cette mirabelle, et la plus belle, c'est Isabelle, reads the letter poem. To Isabel, this plum, and the loveliest of the two is Isabel. Could I have the next two? Other watercolored letters directly associate their communications with the women to whom they are directed. The legs of Madame Guillemet on the left in a letter to Madame Guillemet, and the head of Isabel Lemonnier on the right in a letter to Isabel Lemonnier. Little flirtatious fetishes whose hem and hat occupy the place more usually occupied by flowers, sent to the fetishized objects of Manet's attentions, 
who can be assumed, however, to have received them as subjects capable of engaging in wit and play. And could I have the next two, please? And here on the left is one of the letters sent to his other favorite, Marie Laurent, whom you see on the right, with a watercolor flower sewn through and through its scrawled ink handwriting. And on the right is the addressee and recipient, the subject and object of that letter, Marie Laurent, posed to represent one of the seasons, autumn, in an autumnal fur coat, which Manet is said to have um, adored. He said he found it ravishing, the coat more than the woman set against a floral background at once wallpaper, fall flowers, and painted ground. Uh, part of the myth uh, that spread about, also true, I think, that spread about Manet uh, at the time, that journalists wrote about and that has um, prevailed, um, was the notion that he uh, loved women and that he had a special gift or converse, uh, conversation with them. It's also the case that during his last years, when he was dreaming of modernist murals, he was really serving as a kind of courtier portraitist, painting the images of these women over and over in oil and pastel. It's not that he took his female companions so very seriously. Indeed, he took them lightly, playfully, decoratively, but also lovingly, if not even a bit enviously. And he took them as friends and correspondents, participants in flowering margins of his unrealized modernism, and in a dialogic language game that defined painting more subtly than titanically, in haiku terms rather than an epic mode. Could I have the next two, please? And now for Cezanne, and I want to ask you to hang on because um, I want to get through uh, this um, uh, part on, on, on Cezanne. For all that the great bather stands as the icon of his modernist genius and his contribution to the modernist progression from grand tradition to historic rupture and breakthrough to new tradition, it was for the young generation that made Cezanne's reputation at the turn of the century the lowly genre of still life that was emblematic of Cezanne's innovations. You can see the still life at the center of Maurice Denis' homage to Cezanne of 1900 on the left, that still life, which you see on the, on the right, was also the centerpiece of uh, Fry's monograph on the, that I mentioned at the outset. Uh, Denis, Maurice Denis, uh, copied the same still life and called it Cezanne's still life. And almost anyone who was anyone in the new symbolist generation of artists, Denis, Bernard, Matisse, made a few still lives that were overtly Cezanneiste. That genre was their currency for establishing their place in the new modernist lineage, but also for establishing Cezanne's liminal place between the realisms of the preceding generations and the symbolisms of those to come. His status, which he then accepted as primitive and precursor to their advancement. Could I have the next two, please? For Cezanne himself, still life was one of his earliest realist genres, which he painted alongside portraits and his infamous early imaginings in paint of rape and murder. It was also a place in which he worked out his relationship between his friend Zola and Papa, the provincial hat maker turned banker and bon bourgeois, you see on the right. The one urging the life of an artist upon him, the other commanding him towards law and the bank. 
the sugar bowl, pears, and blue cup of 1866, which you see on the left in very early show, uh, still life, showed up uh, crowning the head of his chintz-enthroned father, his home very much his castle, in a contemporaneous portrait. Reading the issue of the newspaper L'Evénement, you see its title upside down, in which Zola had published his then scandalous defenses of modern art and its artists, specifically Manet. Did I have the next on the right, please? And Cezanne's early still life practice was also one of the key sites in which Cezanne worked through the relationship between his own couillard, as he called it, facture, and the modernist factures available to him through Courbet and Manet in particular, as you see in a detail uh, on the right. Um, in which Cezanne worked between the options of the sculptural proto-facet um, build, material buildup of the uh, palette knife and the proto-expression, more cur expressionist, more cursive um, scribble of the brush found in his fantasy pictures of the same years. Here put side by side in competition and comparison with one another. Could I have the next on the right, please? <coughs> And still life was the genre in which Cezanne exhibited his considerable leanings towards the uncanny. As in The Black Clock on the right, another well-known um, uh, odd early still life, which Cezanne actually gave um, to Zola. I think most of the objects in the picture were Zola's objects. The Black Clock with its timekeeper minus its hands, functionless, eternally stilled, and funereally doubled between space and mirror space next to a simple lemon, teacup, glass vase, and the sudden color explosion of the livid mouth of a vaginal conch. Described by Rilke in his 1907 letters on Cezanne as, quote, a smooth red orifice whose inward carmine bulges out into brightness and provokes the wall behind it to a kind of thunderstorm blue, unquote. All atop a white napkin that is more Manet even than Manet. Thus, as Meyer Shapiro was to put it in his uh, 19, uh, was to point out in his 1968 essay, *The Apples of Cezanne*, still life was also already a key site for Cezanne's displacement of carnal appetite and sexual fantasy. Could I have the next two, please? As he went along, still life increasingly became the place in which Cezanne articulated the importance of the studio to his practice as a kind of necessary complement to his work en plein air sur le motif, a space in which the autodidact grounded himself and rehearsed the rudiments of his art through copies after plasters of old masters and object arrangements set up for study, not to mention the relationship between sculpture and painting, all of which is played out in the uh, still life with plaster cupid in the courtauld uh, from the mid-90s on the left. It was almost as if his studio were a private surrogate for the academic atelier to which he had never been admitted and to which his friends, the Impressionists, opposed their open-air uh, painting of modern life. What still life almost never was for Cezanne was what it had been for Manet in the beginning. The genre associated with the kitchen and dining room, with the meal, food preparation, and food consumption. Indeed, his still lives marked their departure from that scene their excision of the kitchen, and their replacement of the dining with the studio table. Now, the studio, uh, the still life on the right, 
uh, is sometimes called uh, the kitchen table. And like many of Cezanne's still, life, uh, still lifes, it hints at spaces beyond the frame of the picture and the purview of the studio. Spaces which might be domestic and which certainly invite corporeal attention with bits of chairs um, to sit on and floors uh, to walk on and objects to pick up and rearrange or put back in the kitchen where they might once have belonged. But I think it's fair to say that that kitchen table on, uh, is no kitchen table. It is one that has been converted into a studio table. The basket balancing precariously atop it on the upper right-hand corner might have been prepared in the kitchen. And along with the portfolio on the bureau, um, which you can perhaps see here, uh, in the upper left corner, it might suggest excursions out into the countryside, say around Mont saint -Dictoire. But a kitchen table, it no longer is. In that sense, uh, and in that sense alone, there is no still life practice until then that refutes the femininity of the genre more clearly than Cezanne's does. And could I have the next on the left? Occasionally, Cezanne's watercolor still life suggests the kitchen much more forcefully as in this late example from the first decade of the 20th century on the left, which crowds another one of those so-called kitchen tables, so chock full of kitchen implements, bottles, pitchers, pots, burners, sugar casters, and of course fruit, that it gives new meaning to the expression, everything but the kitchen sink. Yet they look like such objects look on moving day, gathered together in surplus, not in use, as if for an inventory of all the kitchen items that had been stolen for studio purposes. Thus, this kitchen table, too, in its very excess of kitchenness, marks the replacement of the kitchen by the studio. And could I have the next two, please? And what about this kitchen table or kitchen ledge on the right? Does its humdrum black pot handle set disconcertingly to my eye amidst its blood-ripened, hypersensual row of buttock-like fruit, truly speak of the kitchen. Uh, the same or similar pot, again, another one of these uh, everyday uh, pots, sits more unobtrusively next to a cleft, red-slashed watermelon and a projecting uh, 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 knife handle in the watercolor on the left. Well, if the pot handle on the right speaks of the kitchen, it does so again uh, to index its removal from the kitchen and the transformation of its function from cooking utensil to studio prop and from there to bodily and sexual displacement. Never was a pot handle atop a couple of pears so preposterously phallic. This is the kind of thing that happens to people who look at Cezanne's still lives. And never was the row of fruit in the midst of which it erects itself so fleshy, so cleft, so luscious. Never, that is to say, were the apples or the pears of Cezanne so overtly sexual, so exaggeratedly corporeal, as in this kitchen ledge, which is not a kitchen ledge. But if Cezanne's kitchen tables leave the kitchen behind to assert the context of the studio, art and its ability to make uh, things into fan phantasmatic bodies, at the same time they point to the kitchen offstage and to the space of the house beyond by its very absence always marking its possible, though invisible, contiguity with the realm of the studio. And paradoxically, they do so more insistently than any other still life oeuvre that I can think of. Could I have the next two, please? And here at last we get to the one and only one still 
uh, still life uh, uh, watercolor that's in the um, uh, museum right now on the right. Cezanne's still lifes in watercolor were sometimes full-blown pictures, as in the um, Getty watercolor, um, which you see on the, uh, on the left, which a foot and a half by two feet, uh, large for a watercolor. At other times, they were more clearly devoted to showing their own intricate process of making, of drawing with the pencil and painting with the watercolor brush, and then drawing and painting and drawing again, as you see in the reiterated uh, lines, particularly in this carafe and thus indexing the studio and its processes in that way as well, as in the Perlman still life uh, on view in the art museum. On the other hand, no watercolor painting, and perhaps no still life, was ever so ambitiously pictorial as a still life with blue pot on the left, built up out of complicated layerings of graphite and pure watercolor pigments, which Cezanne let dry between applications in order to render the simple provincial still life a rather grand one, expanding beyond the table, suggesting landscape as surely as the quote from Balzac that Cezanne loved so much, quote, the tablecloth white as a layer of newly fallen snow upon which the place settings rise symmetrically, crowned with blonde rolls, unquote. Replace that with the mountainous mound of floral tapestry rising like Mont Saint-Victoire on the left, the tenting of air-like um, uh, strokes of blue and green, the, the, the slide doesn't give you the right color, um, above an earth-brown um, uh, horizon line, the waterfall of, uh, of cloth um, to the right, and the meandering pathway from the front uh, to the middle um, to the back, um, marked by, ob by apples and objects in the center, and you have the Getty still life. Still life then, and still life in watercolor, with its attachment to the studio, was one of those key places in which Cezanne tried to work out the differences between genres, the differences between media, and the essential um, um, uh, but infinitesimal difference between stopping and finishing. Can I have the next two, please? But if Cezanne didn't paint the domesticity of cooking and eating into his still lifes, he did paint the most feminine of still life subgenres, the flower piece. And he did so throughout his career, with a remarkable flair for its decorative sensuality and nuance, sometimes even mimicking the illusionist devices of the old still life tradition. Look, for instance, at the mirroring of the fruit in the polished uh, tabletop on the right, a very rare um, um, uh, event for, uh, painterly event for Cezanne. He painted bouquets in glass and delftware vases in the 1870s and 80s. Could I have the next two? In Rococo vases, such as the one on the left, and plain rustic Provencal ceramic ware, such as the olive jar uh, on the right. Next two, please. And then in the late 80s and early 90s, he painted his most Fontaine Latour-like bouquets varying the vases and the flowers, and setting them amidst fruit and atop tables and against wall corners, much the way Fontaine Latour did, but obviously with a different uh, paint handling. And could I have the next two? If Chardin, Courbet, Manet, and Fontaine Latour were on Cezanne's mind as a floralist, it was Delacroix, most of all, who spurred him to make his most Baroque flower arrangements, those that spoke most of his colorism like the late 90s chrysanthemums, which you see on the left, at the barns, whose wild profusion of color mimics the efflorescence of Delacroix's bouquets, such as the mid-19th century one on the right. 
There, on the left, the decorative logic of the flower piece allowed Cezanne to experiment more vividly than he usually did with the relation between painted mark and its objective referent, in this case, the fringed uh, chrysanthemum uh, petal, as well as the relation between figure and ground, uh, which gets very complicated, thing and surrounding space, which are rendered each as fully material as the other. Above all, such moments speak not of Cezanne's austere modernism, his forerunning of cubism, but of a Baroque, effusive, late-coming romanticism with all its vivid colorism intact, a strain which runs barely restrained throughout his work, but which is expressed most clearly in still life. And could I have the next on the right? At the same time, Cezanne ran the whole gamut in his flower from coloristic extravagance and figurative density to the most minimal and delicate of watercolor posies, like this one on the right from the mid-80s, a simple drinking glass with some barely indicated blossoms in a firmly but lightly indicated corner and just a whisper of color. And could I have the next on the right? Or towards the middle of the, uh, of the spectrum, a more complexly elaborated watercolor blossom, like this uncut rose from the late 90s, set outdoors in the garden or perhaps in the conservatory, amidst a vertical plane of trellis greenery, in the, indicated rather tremblingly in a web of rose and green against a white ground. And could I have the next on the left? Well, I want to end with this minimally colored mid-80s watercolor and graphite study on the left which bridges the genres of still life and portraiture for the rarity of its intimacy and its suggestion of a human relationship with the missing woman in Cezanne's life, Hortense Fiquet, the model and mistress who bore their illegitimate son and had to be hidden from Cezanne's father until they were married and the son legitimized in 1886, just before the death of the father. And yet Hortense and the child, or the brat, as he was called by Cezanne in some of his early letters, continued to live apart from Cezanne, who increasingly holed himself up in his studio, separating his working from his family life, the object relations of the studio from the intimate relations of the household. Could I have the next on the right? Nevertheless, in the genre of portraiture, there was no one whom Cezanne portrayed more often than Madame Cezanne. Here on the, on the right, shown in the parlor in an overstuffed red armchair, lyrically described by Rilke in his letters, her dress meticulously recorded by her husband. Next on the right, please. She's shown full figure and distant, or up close head and bust, in this case on the right with her hair drawn back tightly to emphasize the androgynous geometry of her head. Could I have the next on the right? Or her hair loosened once in a while, head tilted, to relax the geometry and soften, humanize, and feminize the face, caught between melancholia and a sullen stubbornness. Well, though both painters, Manet and Cezanne, married women with illegitimate sons, Cezanne was as unlike Manet as he could be, as he could possibly be, in his relations with women. Not only did he not flirt or write letters to them, he was famously afraid of them. Not only was he not an elegant man of the world who loved the company of society women, he was awkward, anxious, and alternated between intense fear of physical contact and sudden submission to fierce and clumsy desires. This also is part of the mythology, and it comes very clearly through the letters. 
And though solicitous of other men's partners and of his own mother, it is not clear that he much liked his own wife, at least in later years. He was careful about her health and financial welfare and scrupulous about his responsibility to her and their son. But he kept her at a distance, lodged her elsewhere, and in everywhere seemed to treat his very inconvenient marriage as a marriage of convenience. There are no letters to her among the many that have been saved, and neither she nor their son, with whom Cezanne did communicate and, and became very close with later on, um, neither of them were physically close enough to be on hand when Cezanne died in 1906. In short, there was in Cezanne's life and career none of Manet's courtly play with words and pictures destined for female reception. Yet here on the left is what seems to be a poignant contradiction of all that I've just said. Painted around the time that Cezanne's home life was regularized by marriage, legitimization of his son, the death of his father, and his coming into property, it is at once portrait and floral still life. And the portrait, very faintly, is up here. It suggests a tie between the two genres, and for once the missing link between the processes of the studio and the familiarities of the house, the greenhouse, and the bed as well as the relationship between intimate and dispassionate observation. For once, it suggests the kind of language play that Manet engaged in in his letters to women, and that Cezanne had indulged as a late adolescent himself in his correspondence with his uh, male friend Zola. For Hortense is here associated with the Hortensia, the French name for the hydrangea. On the drawing page, that linguistic play is tried out as a visual analogy, which, of course, is discovered to yield as much difference as similarity. And here, Hortense is rendered from an intimate point of view that, that suggests Cezanne's gazing at her close by and almost from below, or from the pillow across from hers. It looks strangely like a love letter, though, of course, it may have been nothing of the sort. For one thing, the diminution of Hortense's head in relation to the Hortensia bloom and its lack of color also suggests some distanciation. In any case, as much as the drawing page is a site of linguistic association made visual, so is it a somatic space in which Hortense's head seems to sink sleepily into the paper as if it were a pillow from which she gazes half awake, not quite at her viewer, with pillow folds uh, wisps of hair and even a crease uh, in her neck, um, all caught with a sharp, delicate pencil that then produces, as if automatically, and I don't know if you can see that, um, a hovering, almost caressing um, set of hatch marks, uh, which are detached from their referent, yet just barely attach her uh, to the cream surface of the paper at the same time. Well, her association with the Hortensia bloom, differently oriented on the page, watercolored in with green and pink where she is not, its nest of framing leaves a kind of inversion of the pillow folds cradling her head, leads to the turning of our head, quite literally and, almost, uh, and also automatically, to follow her lean into the pillow and then turn the hydrangea from her horizontal to its vertical orientation. And so as the drawing page drifts around, so does she and so do we, as if caught in a half-conscious web in which language and vision, drawing and coloring, eye and hand, objective and intimate relations are intimately, yet differentially, related. And can I have the last on the right, please? 
After Cezanne's death, Hortense, Hortensia, remained in his son's possession. And now, I'm told, it hangs on the bedroom wall of its current private owner. It was very rare. Cezanne tried his hand at it at least twice in a row, but he didn't seem to return to the theme after that. Except, perhaps, when a decade or so later, uh, in the late 90s, he drew and watercolored a vivid Hortensia bloom, which you see on the right, escaped somehow from its confining pot. You see the beginning of a stem and then the continuation of the, the stem uh, over here. Strikingly animate, stretching its neck and head with a kind of human intensity, as if leaning yearningly out the curtained window. Is this another allusion to Hortense? Well, it's hard to know. If so, it's a projection, mine and perhaps Cezanne's, of his own longings onto her through the figure of the flower. In any case, these images lie, like Manet's flowers too, at the margins of Cezanne's famously heroic struggle with nature, his sensations and his realizations. That struggle that demanded autonomy from the household and human relations. That struggle that his followers made into an epic modernism. Those margins show an art and an artist more vulnerable, more human, more contradictory, more nuanced and particular, and perhaps more interesting than that. An art and an artist not determined or explained by, but in relation to a life. Cezanne, like Manet, may even have been an artist who made an art that may sometimes have corresponded to what he imagined a woman's position and subjectivity to be. A bit like Rilke, in his letters to, on Cezanne, which were written to his wife, herself an artist, to make Cezanne's paintings vivid to her as well as to himself. Thank you. I'm happy to take to take questions if there are questions. No questions. Let, let me ask. Um, I was really interested in what you said about how Cezanne used his uh, still lights as a as a way to try different um, brush strokes, different styles. Did, did you see the same thing when you look at his landscapes, which, of course, is where I've always thought he did that? Uh -huh. Well, his landscapes, I think, have always um, sort of, the bathers in the landscapes occupy kind of different places equally prominent, I think, in, in how we think of Cezanne. Of, of um, and certainly the landscapes, the landscapes have been taken to be key to his project, which was to, to render his sensations of, of nature before the motif. And they're full, especially in the late years, um, of experimentation with uh, brushwork. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't deny that, but I think it starts earliest and in a, in most intensively in the kind of uh, exercise space of the of the studio, where he could control things, and where also objects that that sat still and that he could arrange um, in different ways um, uh, could be rendered. Um, uh, brushwork, as well as levels of finish, as well as figure ground relations, which I think are more are worked out more um, intensively in. Um, 
in something like still life where you have objects against uh, against various kinds of complicated grounds rather than Mont Saint Victoire or something. Um, there are landscape studies, I think, that do some of the same um, uh, work as the, as the still lives. And I think there's a crossing uh, between the two. But I think, though he emphasized, and though it's always been emphasized that he was an outdoors um, painter, I think the studio is incredibly important um, for him. It's a kind of um, uh, a way of kind of solidifying and control, a control on the experiment, I suppose you might say. I hope all of you will join me in thanking Professor Armstrong and join us for refreshments uh, immediately in uh, behind the lecture hall. Thank you.